0: Hello, Gabfest listeners. Help us make Slate even better by filling out our short survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com/survey. Thank you. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for February 18th, 2021, the Let the Purge Begin edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am in Charleston, South Carolina, where I am spending a week in a place that is not quite as cold and rainy and snowy as everywhere else in the country. So uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Charleston. I am joined by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hello.
1: (laughs) Are you at the end of a tunnel?
0: (laughs) And, And then... Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. Today, we'll talk about the civil war in the Republican Party, or rather the what civil war in the Republican Party? (laughs) Donald Trump is acquitted. Will the party break free of him and his family? Or will there just be recriminations and it will be the Trump Party ad infinitum? Then, schools and COVID, schools and vaccination, schools and teachers— how to think about how to reopen. Can, can reopening happening? What is the state of reopening? We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it again because we think it really matters. It's really important. Then we're going to be joined by one of America's best healthcare reporters, Jonathan Cohn, to discuss his new history of Obamacare as well as the vaccine rollout. Plus, we will not look back on the distinguished legal career of Justice Stephen Breyer on the occasion of his resignation <laughs> because he mysteriously has not yet stepped down. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter.
2: We should talk about that as an actual issue, because you could totally argue that now is not the time to have a huge partisan court fight. But anyway.
1: David and his briar watch disagrees.
2: Briar watch. Okay. He would like to be thrown into that, wait for it, briar patch.
1: Oh, ho ho
0: That was coming miles away, John. (laughs) President Trump was not convicted by the Senate last week. The seven Republican senators who voted to convict him, as well as the 10 House members who voted to impeach him, are already facing recriminations, censure threats, primary threats, more. In the case of Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, who did not even vote to convict former President Trump, but did declare baldly that Trump was responsible for the insurrection and capital invasion... Trump is already going after him, unloading on him for being a dour loser. So, John, McConnell made a bet, and or is making a bet, it seems to me. And I would almost always lay my odds with whatever, however Mitch McConnell is betting, that the GOP can jump off the tiger's back, that they can jump off Trump's back and somehow shed him and retain the status as the party that it's been and to, can continue to dominate and win national elections, win the presidency, win, control the Senate, control state legislatures, and can still be supportive of democracy and the truth and not be seen as abhorrent on on democracy, race, the truth. But is that a bet that Mitch McConnell is going to win?
2: Well, I don't know. You'd have to base. I mean, he's making a bet basically about, I think this is the case. He's making a basically a bet about the the Senate and and the races in 2022. Democrats, just to review the bidding, need to defend 14 seats. Republicans will defend 20. and no Democratic senator is running for re-election in a state won by Donald Trump. Why does that matter? Because states increasingly have voted for their senators based on the way they vote for presidents, which means that Democrats are in a pretty safe place. You're not trying to run. Um... Now, you do have, Warnock's up in Georgia, which um, is—and Mark Kelly is up in Arizona. So those are states that Donald Trump didn't win, but they're states that are, you know, wobbly. But nevertheless, you've got Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania— States where the electorate is, you know, not the same as it is in Alabama. And basically, Mitch McConnell is arguing that the only way you can win in or hold those seats in those states and, and even have a chance in Georgia and Arizona is is to run more middle of the road candidates, candidates that are not tattooed to the middle of their marrow with the Donald Trump name and ethos. And those are two different things, but they're essentially the same thing. So that's the bet he's making. He's made this bet before, and he's lost it when the the Republican Party has nominated cranks in states like Delaware and Arizona back in 2014 and Colorado. So, that's the bet he's making. He's making about the electorate in, very, in a very small number of states. Wisconsin would be another one. Now Wisconsin's really interesting because Ron Johnson, who, is, who hasn't said whether he's going to run for reelection, but looks like he's up again, I mean, not he, we know he's up again, but it looks like he might be running again, is you know, uh, if on the continuum he is the furthest away from, say somebody like Mitt Romney or Ben Sass who voted to convict, Ron Johnson is on Team Trump and and said Mitch McConnell doesn't speak for the conference when he blamed Trump for the insurrection. So that's where things stand. But in the whole party, the energy and the and, you know, that market I've been talking about for weeks is all very much still basically 100 percent in the Donald Trump camp and of the Donald Trump worldview.
1: Here's what I don't understand about this. It's the it's Omar's line. When you come from the king, you best not miss. Like, McConnell missed. They didn't vote to convict him in impeachment. He obviously couldn't muster the votes for that. He didn't even vote for it himself. And, and yet he's going for Trump. And the only thing that makes me think it could possibly succeed is that suddenly Trump has turned into either a silent or an actually bad communicator with, like, some long statement about McConnell that just didn't have his usual pithy, perfect for 140 characters, like, zing to it. In that vacuum, it seems like McConnell might have a shot, but I don't see why that lasts. I don't well, know, maybe it does. Also, One
2: other just quick point I would interject, sorry, David, is is that what the Loeffler and Purdue losses in Georgia suggested, and in other places this is true, too, is that Donald Trump doesn't convey— um, and this will be different at the, at the presidential level. Um, but the, basically he, he has very thin coattails when he's on a ticket and he can't anoint you as a, I mean, it might help you in a primary, but it doesn't help you in a general. And that's the, that's the other bet that McConnell is making is that his power, even at its height, had a lot of sway on people, members in office, cause they don't want a primary challenge. And they don't want to lose a primary, but it has—it was limited within its own sphere. And his bet is that it's even going to be more limited with him out of office.
0: But it's not clear that not Donald Trump conveys either, in the sense that if you—it's not clear that if you take a position which is, I am, I am critical of Donald Trump. I'm critical of his effect on democracy and on the party. That that is—that's extremely unsafe position to be, as you can tell from the. Yeah, as a Republican, from the massive effort to censure and condemn anyone who voted for impeachment or conviction.
2: Yeah, I think what what I think what McConnell's trying to do is clear a space on the bus for somebody who is not full Trump. So, in other words, let's say you're a candidate in one of those states that he's concerned about. You don't necessarily, although you'll you'll be forced to and part of your job in the primary and as a candidate will be kind of ducking these questions, but you don't necessarily need to come out full bore the way McConnell did. But, but what he's saying is there's a the party still represents some attachment to reality. Candidates should still run in that way. And that the hope is that if you build it, a candidate will come, the candidate will have some appeal in the state, and that that will get them through the primary. And then they will be a more valuable sure, general election I, candidate.
0: I, I think you're understating what McConnell is trying to do. McConnell. To, as Emily said, was going for the king and continued. He didn't need to make that speech after after the vote. The vote was over. He didn't need to make a speech that was that condemnatory of Trump. McConnell is trying to accomplish something more than open a space for people who are not full Trump. He is trying to get Trump out.
2: Well, sure. And I it, mean it doesn't s- appear
0: like that 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 is a well, to, my question is like is that a viable effort at all?
2: Well, it's better than no effort, eh <laughs> I mean, you're not going to win in in those states by I don't think, and because your most recent example of this is is an election in which both Trump won, they lost the Senate and they didn't win back the House, the evidence of the moment suggests that it's not helpful in swing states, Um, A. B, the evidence is that he doesn't convey. C, great if Mitch McConnell can do away with Donald Trump in some way, but short of that, he needs to be able to try to create some space for a non-Trump candidate. Uh, if he believes, as he has through his career and as most recent evidence would suggest, that the only way you can compete in these states is if you have some candidate that is not objectionable to a broader electorate. The big, 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 big question is whether that kind of candidate can win a primary, whether you've cleared space on the bus or not, whether the primary itself is so locked up by the needs of the this Trump market that that's even possible but I think that's generally what he's trying to do. And we'll find out, you know, these Republican parties that are censoring these senators, those are the ones that are full of the kinds of voters that, that participate in primaries.
0: Emily, there is enormous support in polling for the relief bill that President Biden is pushing. There's significant goodwill towards Biden. The Republican Party, according to at least some measures of voter registration, is shedding people. Are Democrats, do you think, in a position to capture enough people, enough of the small minority of Republican voters who don't want to be with Trump to make the Democratic Party a majority party? Can can they actually not simply keep those people from voting for Trump, but pull them into the Democratic Party and make this a make this a 55-45 country instead of a 45 45 country.
1: I mean, that's a great question. I, I guess I feel like they have a tiny shot because of the popularity of the relief bills. And, you know, the idea of more infrastructure spending to come, which could also prove popular because Biden seems like such a sort of mild figure as president. So far, you like kind of barely know he's there, which is fine with me. Personally, it's such a relief or a change. And yet it just seems like, how is that ever going to really happen? Because there's always some wedge issue. There's always some way that people are reminded that they want to stand in some other third place. And so what I wonder is you're you're really going to end up with is more independent, non-affiliated voters.
2: One thing we should also note here, the funny thing about the McConnell-Trump spat, is that you can make a pretty strong case that there is no politician or even non-politician who did more to get Donald Trump elected and stay in office than Mitch McConnell. When he blocked yeah. Merrick Garland's, when he blocked Garland's nomination and created that opening on, this, on the court, that motivated a lot of voters to vote for Trump who found him objectionable but knew the court seat was important. And then also, once he was in office, the way in which McConnell, including the most recent impeachment, uh, managed the impeachment process to close off avenues for witnesses, for um, trying Trump while he was actually in office, protected Trump um, considerably. Uh, so that should not be lost to the historical record.
0: What I don't understand, and I would love one of you two to theorize about this or explain this to me, there is a collective action problem that I think we've talked about in the Republican Party. There is a significant number of Republicans, uh, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz, uh, Josh Hawley, others, who it is very much in their interest for Donald Trump, to Mike Pence, to be out of the way so that they can compete and run for the presidency, which is what they desperately want. And so the party can they can they can have the power and influence that they want and not be in the shadow of this person who most of them think is is a fool and a, a vicious person as well. And like ultimately like sort of detrimental to the country. I think they deal, most of them do think that. I think Mike Pence basically thinks that. Why can they not find some way to sideline him, to push him aside such that they are allowed to compete? What is the way that that can happen? We've been talking about this for months and months, assuming that there would be some way that this would happen. And it looked like impeachment well, was the way. And yet it is not even close to happen.
2: Well, it's like when people used to say, why can't the Republican Party, you know, do the right thing on guns? People who believed in, in gun uh, restrictions on gun ownership. It's because their voters don't want them to. The vast majority of Republican voters in poll after poll show they want Donald Trump to have a major role in the next presidential selection if not run himself secondly whether he has a whether he is a part you know he, let's say he moves to Aruba and never says another word again all the things that he created all oh, the things that Rush Limbaugh created God they, can you imagine how great that would be they, those oh. voters still want all of those things they still want identity laden value laden appeals that are very grievance laden appeals that are very uh, Trump like whether Trump exists or not. And finally, the best way to eject Donald Trump would be on values grounds, on the things that the Republican Party used to use as standards to evaluate public behavior. The problem is they jettisoned all of that to make room for Donald Trump. So all of the talk about character and values that they would have used to attack, say, Bill Clinton, they have changed their mind on all of that and have such a deep record of that that it's... and. By the way, it wouldn't work with those voters anyway, because those voters are the ones that show they didn't care about it when they were picking their nominee in 2016. So I think those are all reasons why those people can't uh, eject him. Uh, or even if they ejected him, they don't eject the, the, the patterns of habits of thought that he's um, brought to the fore in Republican politics.
0: Slate Plus members, you get benefits, so many benefits for being a Slate Plus member. Zero ads on any Slate podcast bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and of course, bonus segments on the GabFest. And you also get to support the work that we get to do here on the GabFest and that Slate is doing. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And our Slate Plus topic this week is Rush Limbaugh. How should he be remembered? Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of
2: life-changing care,
3: and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions.
0: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. According to data I saw this week, now I don't know where I got it. (laughs) 42% of students are exclusively attending a virtual school. 35% are attending in-person school and 22% have a combination of in-person and remote learning. We're going to return once again to one of the most important and confusing issues of this pandemic. When, how should kids and teachers return to school in person? And is the resistance to that irrational? Um, We have talked about this before. It is... Really complicated issue. There are issues around unions, around race, around inequitable distribution of resources, around vaccines. John, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Um, take it. Take take us away. So when we talk, what you hear in the public conversation is, well, it,
2: schools have been found to be safe if they take the proper measures. To um, well, first of all. T- taking the proper measures in school is working well in some school districts that have been open and where everybody's, everybody is wearing masks, social distancing. The classrooms are big enough to re- retrofit for COVID. They can put up the plexiglass screens. They can have hybrid learning, and they have super fast contract tracing. But that's really, 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 really hard to do to keep all of that in line. And they also have to retrofit their HVAC systems and some schools don't have good ones and they don't have the money to fix them. And so when you get down to the HVAC level, it, it just gives you a sense of the level of complexity of what needs to be fixed, that it's not just about how people behave, it's about infrastructure. Um, and so the, the, the way this is framed um, around teachers who, who lack the will or politicians who lack the will just seems to be to miss how granular this is. Um, and the other thing that really struck me is when you talk to teachers that have dedicated their life to helping kids, they're fearful for their safety, but to frame them as not caring about the kids is is not really um, fair to a lot of these teachers who this is what they dedicated their lives lives to.
0: Yeah, it's well, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, the more I read about this issue, uh, the less I know what to think about it. I, on the one hand, I'm quite persuaded by the evidence that schools are not increasing community transmission that there are reasonable measures that most schools can take even if they cannot take all of the measures they're not going to you're not going to retrofit the HVAC in 41% of American schools in the next 3 months even if teachers are not fully vaccinated that the even under those conditions that you can still have school relatively safely on the other hand there is a huge issue around getting buy-in. As, as I always say, and like a repeat this mantra about vaccination, vaccines don't work, vaccination works. Like that if parents do not feel confident in sending their children back to school, if they don't feel like this is a safe situation, if teachers do not feel confident in doing it, then the fact that you can keep saying it and the fact that, that there's strong evidence is not enough, that there is more work that has to be done to overcome anxiety and that fear that people have. And simply telling people not to think that way and not to feel that way doesn't do any good. In the same way, like, telling... This is, this is like when, when liberals tell conservatives they should feel that way. It doesn't work. Conservatives shouldn't tell liberals that they should feel that way. It's not going to work either. It's like there, there has to be more than simply exhortation. As much as I want exhortation and scientific evidence to work, it, it simply needs more than that.
2: One thing that does seem... True, and Emily, tell me if you think this is wrong. Is that if you're going to treat teachers like they are a vital part of the society, then you should put move them up the vaccine list. I think vaccinating them, you know, and making that more of a of an in, basically a precondition. I know Fauci said you can't do it because of the the supply, but that does seem to be somewhere where exhortation seems a little bit more um, effective than just mere finger wagging.
1: I mean, I'm all for putting teachers toward the front of the line, and I've been saying that for a while. I think making it a precondition when that's not what the science bears out is a mistake. And I guess one thing I'm struck by, so my colleague Susan Dominus wrote a a good piece about Rhode Island and how the governor there really pushed to open the schools and how in Providence, which has lots of low-income people of color, 70% of families are back and how they accomplished that. And one thing... The then governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo, who's now, I think, our commerce secretary, if she got confirmed, um, said was that her what she decided was that she needed to see it go badly to close the schools as opposed to preemptively closing them and then trying to reopen them. And when you look across the country, there are schools open all over the country where you know states don't have as low rates of community spread as the CDC just told us they're supposed to have, and they don't have everything in place, you just named John. They have masks, which seems to be super important. And I don't mean to sound cavalier about other safety precautions. I am not. But that is evidence that actually you can do this without adding to community spread. It's not going to be zero risk. You can't eliminate risk. But when you think of the cost of keeping kids home, I just feel like our whole set of assumptions in some parts of the country in my view, went off track. And I will say now I am seeing that in my own community. So Connecticut is a state where almost every district has been open in some hybrid or even more fashion since September. It is n- There's no evidence it's added to community spread. But my city, as I'm sure I've talked about on the show, kept the schools closed. It was incredibly bitter and divisive. They decided to reopen in the middle of January. At that last meeting before reopening, a chemistry teacher accused the mayor of genocide. I mean, it was really, really heated. There were school board members who absolutely voted against reopening and said it would be a disaster. We reopened for pre-K through five. A lot of kids didn't come back because there is a lot of fear, but it's been fine. And now they're going to partially reopen the middle schools in a couple of weeks. And I was struck just listening to the last Board of Ed meeting at how people who were against reopening were coming around based on what they could see in front of their eyes. And it's not that we have low COVID in New Haven or Connecticut right now. We don't. We are way over the CDC guidelines. There's this body of evidence on the ground that seems to be sometimes missing from the conversation in very blue parts of the country where there is entrenched opposition. And I find that kind of baffling. Yeah.
2: But, no, isn't the, but, I, but isn't the body of science... Uh, I mean, so for example in schools doing all of the things that are, that are recommended, there's evidence that it, there's not community spread, but, but retaining and having a superintendent of schools and having teachers who are on top of all of that is different than a school in which, I mean, having visited one where it's all going well It's amazing the amount of stuff they have to do to make sure it all continues to go well. See, I'm just not convinced
1: of that because we have lots of evidence from other parts of the country that they're not doing every single thing. There is no, like plexiglass, for example, like that's not really something anybody thinks is necessary at this point. I mean, the big sticking points, right, are the HVAC you pointed to, which is, to me, is a big deal. I mean, soon enough when- so that's 41% it's, of the schools. Right, but soon enough, we're going to be able to open the windows, right? And there I mean, the evidence from Rhode Island was that cracking the windows on its own made a difference. So, and they have crappy buildings in Providence and they've opened safely. And then the second thing is testing, right? Which can be really complicated and difficult to stand up. Like that's a right. lot of work to get that all moving. And if you're going but, to require that for, you know- Weekly for every teacher or even every student, you're just not going to open the schools this spring.
2: But that's what I'm saying is, I mean, it's testing and also contact tracing. I mean, but I the, the just, pros-
1: but what's the evidence? I mean, really, when you look across the country, what is the evidence that we need all every single thing you just named in place? Like there are lots well, of examples and CDC studies without those all of those elements where things are fine.
2: Well, so I'm saying, so HVACs and testing, those would be two things, which you also named. No, so I'm, I'm be...
1: arguing that I don't think testing is necessary. I think it's great. Oh, I'm don't. all for it. But there are lots of schools open without regular testing.
2: So, and the other thing is obviously contact tracing. So that's complicated. So you get a call that your student was sitting next to somebody who has been, is positive. So now you have to quarantine and your kid has to quarantine that's something that exists if you're doing it right or you're doing one of the things that the CDC recommends, you're talking about a major disruption in people's lives if they're doing, so it's, so, I mean, there's one thing is about community spread, but there's also putting people back in school has knock on effects that, that are not just about transmission, it's about disruption of lives. Whereas if they're at home, I mean, obviously this is balancing, right? Cause you're balancing what being at home does psychologically for those kids who feel like their life is taking an irrevocable turn. But going back to school isn't just about community spread. It's also about the disruption that happens when you do all the things that the CDC recommends and you find cases, and then people have to quarantine for well, 14 days wait, who, but are, that,
0: who are... But then, John, you, you they're know, back at the home, circle. which is where they were anyway. Yeah. Then they're just back at home where they would be if the school wasn't open. So that's, par- that's not exactly true I mean, because... That doesn't seem
2: it, you'll just to let me finish. That's not exactly true because the parents who were at home with the kid, are now having to quarantine because they were in contact with their kid who's having to quarantine. So yeah. that wasn't the case when the kid was just at home.
0: So that's well, no, the disruption but, but I'm pe- talking but about. But when, when pe- you know, I am working at home, and I one of the reasons I have to work at home is that my children do not go to school. And so I have to be at home with my children who are not going to school. So we're not under quarantine. No no not I know, but, there because because we've been contact traced, but we are still there because right, my children know, but, are not but, physically uh, in school, so I cannot be physically elsewhere.
2: Sure, but the, the, but that's not totally the case. I mean, obviously, you can be physically elsewhere because you do sometimes go out and do things. You're in Charleston now, so obviously, you can be physically that's elsewhere. That's because my children are
0: not—I don't have my children this well, week well, I know, because but you I'm can't divorced. So you can't it's like, use,
2: right, but you can't use yourself as an example and then say, well, no, I'm opting out of the <laughs> example. Quarantining. Well, no, that quarantining well, but is that's different exactly than, the case, John. No, no, but quarantining I mean, is different than 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 the obvious, um, complicated constraints of not being able to go. I guess my general feeling
1: about this is, you can kick up a lot of like the perfect is the enemy of the good on this, and sure. then you can like try to open the schools and. And we, like, again, I'm just going to go back, like, the entire state of Florida is open. They have lower pediatric case rates than they do in a lot of blue states where the schools are closed, right? Like, there is all of this sort of blunt, crude evidence out there in the country, some of it coming from red states that a lot of blue liberal cities and states are not interested in hearing. And it is weird. It is just weird. Like, it is a big blind spot.
0: It's not that people are not interested in hearing. Is that the, it's that horror stories ca- are okay? Catch attention, yeah, yeah and exactly. that in blue s- cities, like this is the well. this is the issue. Is that in blue cities, the teaching core and the student body are come from communities generally which have been much more severely impacted, yes. and the
4: lack of trust than, is
1: than huge in thing.
0: A suburban, yeah. a suburban and, school district, but the and way so that you to trust is not
1: to exaggerate risk. Right. And not to talk about zero risk as like the the only way to open the schools or we're not going to have school even in the fall. Like that is well, now my deep fear.
2: Yeah. I mean, the way you build tr- the way you build trust is by elevating teachers by saying you're so important. We need you to get vaccinated immediately.
1: I mean, and that's fine, you. except you can also read some quotes in The New York Times yesterday from the Portland Teachers Union saying vaccination is not going to get us back to school necessarily. Well, that's, that's not I mean.
2: Yeah, sure. there are a well, bunch I mean, of places
1: the, in the country where that's yeah. becoming part of the well, line. And it's yeah. about yeah. exaggerating risk. It is.
2: Sure, sure. But I also it's not just blue states. I mean, if you look at rural counties in in Georgia, you're where teachers have died, uh, you know, there the there there are people who live outside of blue areas who are worried about going back to school in Tennessee and Georgia and um so it's not just this isn't just a a blue state state problem. Um
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18
3: plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Now we're joined by Jonathan Cohn. He is a senior national correspondent at HuffPost, and he's the author of a new book, The Ten Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. It comes out uh, next week, I guess, or maybe this week. It's, it's, it's out. It's out-ish. <laughs> um, and he's one of the great healthcare reporters of this country, or any country, perhaps. The
1: world, John. The solar system. uh,
0: Welcome, welcome to the Gabfest. It's great to have you.
3: Uh, Thank. That's a very high expectation you're setting for me there. So I I know nothing about uh, coverage of healthcare in other countries. So I really can't vouch for that. But
0: I'll take it.
1: We won't ask you about it. But we like to set our guests up to fail in general. Uh,
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So you uh, use the phrase 10 year war," which, when I Googled it, I realized it actually is a Michigan-Ohio State football reference, which I had no idea but since you are live in ann arbor maybe that was intentional
3: there was a wink there was a little bit of a wink there yes
0: uh the question my question to start is looking back over 10 years is our healthcare system today in the obamacare world as much of a disaster as it felt like in the pre-obamacare world is or has life generally improved for most americans or for at least a significant fraction of americans in terms of their healthcare coverage
3: yeah, I I think it's unambiguous that we're in a better place now. I don't I don't think that's a close call actually. And, and and to be clear, I don't think that means everybody is better off, and I don't think that means lots of people feel much better off. But you know, like any program in public policy, it has its winners, it has its losers. Things that went well, things that didn't. And when I think you add up the ledger, uh, it pretty pretty clearly is on the positive side. And you know, and just you know, the met- there are the obvious metrics, right? I mean. We are at a historic low in the number of people who don't have health insurance. It crept up a little bit during the Trump era, but we're still way, way below where it was before the Affordable Care Act became law. Now, that's just insurance. That's just a measure. You know, people could have lousy insurance. It could mean nothing. But we've done a lot of research, and, and, and it's been a few years now, and, there's, and good research. And we really have strong evidence that it's made an impact you know in three ways. Number 1, we see that people are in better financial shape, you know, lower credit card debt. They're they're less likely to, you know, miss mortgage payments, less likely to to, to go bankrupt. We see better access to healthcare. People are getting more tests, they're they're more likely to have a doctor. And then they actually do seem to be healthier and, and living a little bit longer. And and that sounds sort of intuitive like, well, of course they got insurance, of course. But actually that's actually something that's quite hard to prove that there's a link between insurance and mortality. But there have been some really good studies. You know, we still do we still have a lousy, troubled health care system? Yeah. Is it significantly less lousy and less troubled than it was before the Affordable Care Act? I think so.
1: Can we play 10 years afterward quarterback? So one of <laughs> the questions you talk about in your That's book, a lot of Mondays. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Mondays have passed. Exactly. And... One question I will always have about Obamacare is what could we have gotten from 50 senators? Which is obviously a very relevant question right now when the Democrats have 50 senators. And I guess, in other words, what I'm asking is my recollection of President Obama is that he put lots and lots of energy into getting into chasing the mirage of bipartisan support, into trying to get a couple. More than 50 votes, was that a good idea? Could And and if it's clear in retrospect that he could have gotten something better with 50 votes, and maybe you don't think so, but if you do, like, was it in the moment, could he have known that?
3: Yeah, well, I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, there's sort of two separate questions here. If you imagine a world where we don't have the filibuster in the Senate, and you could pass legislation with just 50 senators— and you wind the clock back to 2009 does the affordable care act does it look a lot better yeah for sure many of the compromises that went into passing the law that then i think weakened it and in ways that we see now in sort of the problem what, the places where the the affordable care act falls short so many of them are you trace back to there's no public option there's not enough money in the program and th- that was all the influence of not just trying to get republicans but really more than that conservative democrats and keep them in the pen it wasn't clear that you could get 50 votes so i mean my kind of mantra on this is it's very easy to imagine a better version of the Affordable Care Act. And and in fact, I hope people read the book, they have a pretty good idea of what you would need to do to make a better version of you. It is very hard to imagine a better, substantially better version of the Affordable Care Act getting through Congress in 2009 in the environment. Fundamentally, there just was not a lot of running room there.
2: I think if, yeah, if people to think, just imagine 10 Joe Manchins instead of just one who've just lived through the most recent last few weeks, that's to remind what the situation may have been more like. Um, John, can you um, give us your sense of, okay, so Trump obviously did everything he could to try to undermine the Affordable Care Act. What can Biden, using the administrative flexibility that was put into the law? What can he do to fill it back up with energy? And in so doing, does he finally end the, or are we already at the place where basically the idea that Republicans are going to get rid of it is, is it's too late. It's the roots have taken hold. Um, or, or it can, can Biden do more to put the roots in, in such a way that it can't be removed?
3: Yeah, well, so the starting part of this discussion is we should—we all need to remember, I'm sure Emily knows this as well as anyone, there is a Supreme Court case out there right now uh, in front of the Supreme Court. They're deciding, in theory, they could, you know, an hour from now announce that they are striking down the law. It's unlikely. They certainly sounded like an oral arguments that conservative justices were pretty skeptical of this case, which is good because it's a bonkers, weak, just, I mean, even people who supported the previous lawsuits against the Affordable Care Act are like, this is a ridiculous lawsuit. So, but let's, so let's, that's out there as a possibility. Assuming that doesn't happen, I think there's a number of things the Biden administration can do and is already doing. There are a bunch of tiny, very technical adjustments in regulations, you know, things like how you calculate the subsidies that people who are buying insurance get, um, you know, and and you know, and how you calculate something called actuarial value, and 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 just saying those words probably put you know a bunch of listeners to sleep. But you know, there's about ten different things like that that the Trump administration, you know, basically again, they turned the dial one way. Already, the Biden administration is turning it back the other way. In addition to that. In the COVID relief bill, the one that's moving through right now, they actually, there is a two-year bump in the subsidies for people buying insurance. And and it's it's both, it makes the subsidies for, if you get assistance now, you're going to get more assistance. In addition, there's a whole bunch of people who don't get assistance because their incomes are too high, but they're still middle class. They're going to get help if that passes. And that would actually make a really big difference. Those two alone, I think, make the program more generous. And, and, you know, tree tree roots analogy is pretty good. Just every year it's around, those roots get stronger. And it really does get harder to pull the tree out and and just ask, you know, ask Paul Ryan about that (laughs) because he tried really hard to get that tree out. And, 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 you know,
0: it's still standing there. Jonathan, actually, let's build on that question. Does... Obamacare still animate Republicans? Are they still obsessed? Do you think that with a new Republican presidential administration and a majority in the House or Senate that there will be the same effort? Does the, does the word still drive people crazy? And then as a subset of that, has Obamacare helped or not during the pandemic?
3: Yeah, so I don't know how much it animates them. I'm sure Ted Cruz remains in his heart absolutely committed to you know pulling every 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 piece of it apart. I, we've seen publicly in the last two elections, the midterms of 2018, 2020, they Republicans ran away from Obamacare repeal after s- spending all that time. You know this is our defining cause, and, and and that's political reality. I think they realized that Americans didn't want to get rid of this thing, especially when they learned the Republicans had nothing to replace it with that was better. You know, you think about a program like Medicare, which has been around forever, and Republicans, oh, we're gonna protect Medicare, we're gonna protect Medicare, but of course they're trying to privatize it, and they have all kinds of designs. I imagine that's where, where their efforts will go, and trying to shape it more into a conservative healthcare program, which frankly is what I had always thought they would try to do. I, you know, among the things I, I just didn't realize they were gonna spend 10 years trying to tear the whole thing down. Your other question, has it made a difference in the pandemic? For sure. You know, look, we still have millions of people who have no insurance. We have lots of people with insurance deductibles they can't afford. That is a terrible thing in a pandemic. But again, if you want to imagine a world where the Affordable Care Act does not exist, then you basically just double those numbers. You know, it takes a while to really get good, solid numbers on insurance coverage. But the numbers we're seeing so far suggest that we haven't seen a dramatic increase in the number of people without insurance, which is remarkable given the number of people who've lost their jobs. So, you know, that certainly suggests that a lot of people who, if they're losing insurance, they're either finding it through Medicaid or finding it through exchanges. And and it's doing, you know, at a basic level, what it was designed to do.
1: We are going to prey on you to talk a little bit about vaccine rollout since you know lots about this and you're here. It seems to me like we're sort of in a race between the vaccine distribution and the new variant spreading in terms of whether the coronavirus numbers can continue to go steadily downward. I really love that new graph that shows that downward dramatic slope every day, but I worry that it could plateau or even go up a little bit. And I wonder what you think about the next couple of months and what you think about distribution in the US um, to start with.
3: We are seeing already variants that the vaccines are not as effective against, but the, the, the it's important to remember, not as effective means people are getting sick. They're still The vaccines still work really well at keeping you out of the hospital and keeping you alive, which are the most important things, so I mean the vaccines still work. Um, you know the distribution store in the u s has been funny i 've actually been less pessimistic than a lot of people from the very beginning, even when it would look, things looked really bad in December, it's very clear the Trump administration did not prepare for this. I mean, they, they just, they thought distribution meant we get the states the shots and that's it. And then you guys figure this out. And, you know, you do flu shots and stuff, you'll figure, you know, we have distribution system, that's going to work. And, and quite obviously, that's not right. And the states didn't have time to prepare. If you talk to the local health departments, they're inundated. They haven't set up the IT systems. It's confusing. All the problems we've seen. And then it's been compounded by the fact that we opened up eligibility faster than the supply. Having said that, this was always going to be hard, right? And we've never done anything. We don't have a public health infrastructure in this country. Making this work does take money. It does take effort. It takes coordination. And it takes forethought. I mean, the, the Biden administration, it's not like their vaccine plan has one big idea that's a game changer. Is that they went down a list of 100 things you want to do to improve vaccine distribution. And they're working their way through it. And they've already sort of, you know, started on 25 or 50 of them.
2: Jonathan, is it is it that the Biden administration, is? I mean, it's they're doing the right things, but they're actually doing things. Um, and maybe I'm just repeating what you said when you said that they don't, it's not like they have one great idea, but it's just the fact that they believe they have a role in the process. Yeah,
3: I think they they, they, they believe it's their job to take charge of this. They think they are responsible for this and they feel like it's the federal government's job to make things happen. Sometimes it simply means being there when the states need them. Yeah. States come to them and say, we need money, whatever. Um, one interesting thing I think they've really put an emphasis on and it's important is they've really talked a lot about equity. And what that means in practice is if you look at, you guys may have seen, there have been these great visuals of zip codes. And, you know, you sort of match where are the sort of zip codes where people who are are at highest risk live, your essential workers, right? People in overcrowded housing, they're all low-income communities. Now you sort of put side next to it, the zip codes where most people are getting vaccinated. And they're like mirror images of each other because the high-income zip codes are getting the vaccines, the low-income zip codes are not both with the Trump administration and the Biden administration, they will tell you they are doing X. It's kind of hard to verify that X is actually happening. So we're taking a lot on faith and you should not take a lot on faith. Always be skeptical. So I always try to be careful and say, this is what the Biden administration says they're doing. I live in Michigan. There does seem to be a real emphasis right now when the supply is so limited, they really are trying very hard to get, you know, to low income zip codes. I don't know how much that's the state. I don't know how much that's the federal government, but When the federal government is setting that tone, if you go to the the briefings they do on COVID, it's quite conspicuous. They have had their equity. They have someone whose job is equity on those calls regularly. And when the what you know how it is in politics, so much of leadership is just setting the tone. They say this is important. States are going to follow. The media is going to follow, yeah. and, and stuff happens. Yeah, you do what you measure. I mean, and it's and also a public a health benefit,
1: right? I mean, you hit the hot spots, you stop it from spreading. It's actually like good for everybody.
3: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, this, this these are the childcare workers. These are the food, you know, the, the food service workers. These are the, you know, and this this is where the virus is. Uh, there's there's some saying I'm not it's not coming to my brain. You know, you go where the isn't like a yogi Berra saying. No, or it's a Willie right? Sutton. That's where the money is. Willie Sutton. Ah, uh, Willie Sutton. You go where the money is. Right. So go where the virus is.
0: Jonathan Cohn is the author of The Ten-Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage, which is out this week. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. I am, as I said, I'm in Charleston. One of the things that is shocking as a Washingtonian coming to Charleston is that in Charleston, restaurants and bars are open for indoor dining and drinking at full capacity. It's crazy to see it. It looks so but there is what there is, is there is a lot of cocktail chatter, apparently. I mean I'm outside of those places, but there is cocktail chatter going on. So if you happened to be transported, teleported, Emily, into a a bar where there was cocktails and chatter going on, what would you chatter about before you ran out of the room?
1: <laughs> I would never be in such a room. Schools before bars. Let's see. I am really taken with a story I read this week in The Atlantic by Anna Holmes. It's called The Magazine That Helped 1920s Kids Navigate Racism. And it's about a magazine that W.E.B. Du Bois started in the 20s, in the 1920s, called The Brownies Book. And the article in The Atlantic has these lovely fetching images from this magazine, which are just worth looking at on their own. But what I really loved was how Anna Holmes is focusing on the problem of having a really bleak set of facts about, you know, race relations and racism. And then this question of like, well, how do you make sure that Black kids are getting the kind of... um, Images that will help them develop a healthy sense of self and a sense of pride in themselves. And so she really goes through how Du Bois shaped this magazine, how he thought about this challenge of trying to give some information about the news, but also help kids have lots of other ideas about themselves, like... Lots of really cute images, just normal images of black kids taking music lessons or eating lollipops or going to camp, as opposed to, you know, images that are only stark and that make them seem much more like passive or even the kind of terrible images of pickaninnies, which Holmes says were really common at the time. So anyway, I just recommend this piece um, for the photos, but also the um, explanation in it.
0: John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Mine is on something
2: that David Pogue um, uh, recommended. It's called Radio.Garden. You can go anywhere on the globe and um, hover over one of the little green dots, and it will play the radio station that is playing in that place. So I'm, I've got one up right now from Statenville, Georgia. WHLJ in Statenville, Georgia. So anyway, and it goes all over the globe, which, you know isn't that helpful if you're going to places where they're speaking a language you don't know, but um, it's very cool.
0: That sounds awesome. That sounds like my kind of thing. My chatter uh, watched something last night, just sort of stumbled in my Netflix recommendations into it. <laughs> just an hour and 20 minutes of utter bliss. It is called pick of the litter. It is a short, uh, it's a documentary. It's just a shortish documentary about five uh, Labradors all from one litter, one litter that are being trained to be guide dogs for the blind. And it's about which ones are going to make it and which ones don't. And if you can imagine anything that is just a perfect mix of heartwarming and utterly cute and has Labrador puppies, it's got it all. It was joy. So if you're in the mood for something that that will make you cry and smile and uh, and get to look at Labrador puppies of the litter is it listeners you send chatter to us at at slate Gabfest, and you continue to send great chatters to us and now thankfully we're going to hear you give us those chatters and this week's listener chatter comes from ming richie ming richie take it away
5: Hi there. My name is Ming Ritchie. I'm currently living in Melbourne, Australia, and I felt compelled to share this cocktail chatter because it reminded me of something that John Dickerson might share. So I hope to do it justice. My chatter is an article in the Washington Post by Kathy Free about a meteorologist in the Navy who is stationed in Antarctica. Actually, the warmest part of Antarctica, he says, quote, we called it the banana belt because the temperature would get up to 25 in the summer. But that's not really what the article is about. It's actually about his wallet, which he left in Antarctica in 1968 when he was stationed there. And now, some 53 years later, it has been returned to him where he is living in San Diego at the age of 91. My favorite part of the article was when they reviewed the contents of the wallet, which included his Navy ID card, his driver's license, a beer ration punch card with four holes punched. He says this as an excuse, I was pretty much a martini guy. A tax statement, an instruction card with steps to take in case of an atomic attack, a recipe for homemade Kahlua, and two money order receipts for the poker winnings Grisham had mailed his wife after cleaning up in card games at the base. So I just thought that was a really nice feel-good story about all the individuals who took it upon themselves to return this wallet to its rightful owner, and what a treat that must have been for uh, Mr. Grisham himself to receive this artifact from the past.
1: Oh my God, I love that! That those that is an awesome contents of wallet. Like my wallet is so yeah. much less interesting than that.
0: Why did it take them fifty three years to return it? Did that mean that for fifty years other people were like, "Oh, this guy, this old guy left his wallet here," and yeah, I, you haven't heard there,
1: there are delays in post the postal service right now, David. It's just taking a while. Mm-hmm.
0: Homemade Kahlua,
2: that's very particular. That's great, I love stuff like that. I have two lost notebooks that I hope someday will show up um, that I left on planes that uh, I hope somebody found and is just gonna return
0: to me someday.
1: When you're 91.
2: Yeah, well, I would hope before then,
1: but <laughs> yeah.
0: That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Rush Limbaugh, the famous, notorious conservative talk radio broadcaster, died this week, age seventy. He had long struggled with illness, but remained he remained on the air for an immensely long period of time, and in this uh, stakhanovite kind of way for talk radio, talking three hours. A day for decades upon decades uh and those three hours and those three hours was arguably the most influential conservative figure of recent years and certainly a sort of from my point of view a damaging and meretricious and and demagogic figure whose many talents as a broadcaster do not uh forgive his his cruelties and the appalling things that he helped do to american political culture but I don't want to tip my hand. I <laughs> don't want to tip my hand here. To, But we should have a discussion about Rush Limbaugh and what he means, what he meant, why he was important, and um, any particular thoughts any of us have.
1: I mean, for me, what's so important about him historically is that he comes in to talk radio and becomes carried all over the country and hugely popular as the Fairness Doctrine ends. So you have this era from the 20s to the... 80s, with this public interest obligation for radio and broadcast TV. And the Fairness Doctrine starts in 1949, its idea of covering... Public debates, you have to have multiple points of view. And the Reagan administration ends it. And that's when Rush Limbaugh takes off. And he then becomes the sort of forerunner of, you know, Fox News and other right wing hoes who have been so influential. So there's both like the particular flavor of his talk radio brand. Um, and then there's him standing for this transformation in American media.
2: Yeah. He was, a, I mean, he's an incredibly powerful force. He's, he popularized and created the space for and the audience for all of the behaviors that we ultimately saw from President Trump. And he spoke for people who felt like they didn't have a voice in American culture or in American mainstream media, but he did it in a way that was ungenerous to humankind, that inculcated a suspicion of people that um, assumed the worst of them that um, was anti-woman, anti-minority and conditioned an entire generation to think that way and who framed things in a way that didn't lead to understanding but led to a constant state of conflict. So to the extent that if if you are trying to increase the share of people who feel a fellow feeling for their fellow Americans, he was on the opposite side of that cause. And if you believe it's important that people understand the complexity of things and that sometimes human error is the result, not malevolent behavior, um, you're on the opposite side of him for that as well. So he uh, was an incredibly influential force, but um, didn't practice any of the things in any way that I would try to practice as a human or a professional
0: that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation go to slate.com gabfest plus to become a member today
3: okay round two name something
0: that's not boring
4: a laundry ooh a book club computer solitaire huh
0: ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba Casino. <laughs> That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. chumbacasinocom No purchase necessary. Over and
3: by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th.